I can be on this one. I'm multi-mic. I'm bi-mic. Bi I'm bi. <laughs> All right. This announcement especially for those who are not local, because I've had a number of people say, well, folks in your churches want to know how they contribute to, to the this Ukrainian fund. And what you can do is, you know, the IRS does not like it if you put onto a check what you want it to be used for. So stick a note with it, a piece of paper with it, a sticky note on it, um, something of that nature. And you can just make a donation to West Houston Bible Church, and then we will, uh, we will distribute, that, distribute that. We're distributing to Eager, uh, Small Yard, uh, Bruce Bumgardner isn't here. But Pine Valley Bible Church supports them. Several other churches uh, here support Eager and his wife. <clears throat> and uh, and they're separated in the sense that he couldn't leave and she's taken by a nephew to, to Germany. So that's what we're going to do, okay? And so right now I'm going to turn this over to uh, Dr. Johnson and let him continue his outstanding study. Thank you. Well, it's an exciting world. Um, it's up. Talk. Hello? I don't. Can you hear me? No, it's faint. What? It's faint. Yeah, it's faint. It's faint. Eddie's working on it. You want me to faint? Oh. You have to talk so that they know when Okay. All right. I'll just try to talk loud, so if the microphone doesn't work, you can hear me. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> um, we, we, we have rejoiced in seeing uh, very recent examples of God's goodness and his providence. Yes, we have. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Can you hear me now? No. Can you hear me now? No. For those of you who have noticed my tie... If you have a chemistry background, you'll recognize this tie. I wear this tie periodically. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, we're talking about science today. We're going to talk about real science, and we're going to talk about some fake science. And we're going to talk about deception, because fake science is a type of deception. Um, distraction is used for deception a lot of times. Um, my wife and I recently watched a little video uh, clip of two women who were stealing from a third woman who was in church. The one woman had gone to church a little bit early, sat there with her purse sitting next to her. Then two women who were working as a pair came in with one who faced the woman who had just put her purse here and talked very excitedly about something that she wanted uh, prayer for <clears throat> while the other one snuck up behind reached her hand into the purse pulled out the wallet pulled out the credit cards and whatever else she wanted from it put the wallet back in the purse and then by the time the uh, credit cards had been stolen all of a sudden the prayer request was finished and then the two of them walked out and this woman noticed later that she'd been robbed there in church 
and distractions are often used to accomplish deception. So we'll get into that in just a minute. But we have lots of deception going on in the scientific community, and the purpose is to distract us from God. The purpose is to distract us from recognizing who he is. And just like the, just like pages 12 and 13 on the bird book that Mrs. Thelma Bumgardner gave me in second grade, that it, what, those two pages were intended to distract <clears throat> the reader from knowing the truth of how those birds got here on planet Earth. And that uh, Satan is the father of lies and he is quite willing to use deception in many contexts and one of those contexts is the scientific community uh, whom many people rely on to tell us um, the truth about what has not only happening in the world today, but also what has happened in the world long before today. Well, how can we recover the real truth about our origins? That's one of the main things we're going to look at in the next hour. Our real origins, and this is the, the, the summary, so this is where we're headed, our real origins will never know without Scripture. If God did not choose to give us the Scripture, we would never know how the world began or how long ago it began, how things got started, how life got started, how death got started, all of these really big, important issues in life. We would not know the truth about that. those questions if God did not choose to give us that information. Um, one general said the following about deception and distraction. Practically all the ruses and stratagems of war are variations or developments of a few simple tricks. The elementary principle of all deception is to attract the enemy's attention to what you wish him to see and to distract his attention from what you do not wish him to see. It is by these methods that the skillful conjurer, the magic man, obtains his results. And that was written during World War II. And here's a man who we know from World War II, General Montgomery of Great Britain. He was uh, a colleague, uh, a peer of General Dwight Eisenhower, and the two of them together planned the D-Day invasion at Normandy. But how do you trick the enemy so that they won't know that that's what you're getting ready to do is to plan a D-Day invasion in Normandy because spies are all around. And would there be a way that deception could be used to distract the enemy so that the enemy wouldn't know what was about to happen? Yes, there was. And I'm going to go ahead and read about that. Um, Before it ended, World War II touched all of the inhabited continents of the world. The military use of camouflage tactics could fill a series of books. For example, Norwegian resistance fighters equipped fishing boats for clandestine espionage and sabotage against the occupying Germans. Objects as innocent-looking as oil barrels were drafted into military service being outfitted with anti-aircraft guns. Also, a hard-drinking British stage actor named Clifton James, uh, he's the one on the side, the real General Montgomery is the one in the middle. But this stage actor named Clifton James was recruited to impersonate Great Britain's celebrated General Bernard Monty Montgomery because they looked amazingly alike. The real Montgomery was England's counterpart to America's five-star General Dwight Ike Eisenhower. Monty and Ike were jointly planning the upcoming D-Day invasion of Normandy that began June 6, 1944. A plan was hatched to distract German spies who reported the movement of Allied generals. Fool the spies into thinking that General Montgomery was flying to Africa to head up a huge operation. Some of Monty's trusted colleagues played supporting roles, such as conspicuously greeting the actor in public as if he were the real Monty. But the actor, James, almost ruined the ploy, however, 12 days before D-Day, when he got drunk from gin that he had smuggled onto the plane that was taking him to Gibraltar. 
it was well known that the real Monty was a teetotaler. Afterward, two aides stuck close to the camouflage Monty, especially at parties, for the rest of the decoy trip to prevent any further slip-ups. At Gibraltar, the fake Monty acted his part and eventually spoke a bit about Plan 303 with two Spanish bankers who were known German spies. The actor repeated this ruse in Algiers for several days. Meanwhile, the real General Montgomery was in England with Eisenhower plotting the last critical details of the Normandy invasion. Um, I'll, I'll mention another one real quick. Uh, another World War II camouflage victory occurred three days earlier. Throughout 1941, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill hoped that America would enter the war soon enough to help defeat a German invasion of England. But in May 1941, when the war was heating up in northern Africa, it was still a half year before Japanese pilot Mitsuo Fuchido, Fuchida would cry, Tora, Tora, Tora leading the infamously destructive sneak attack on Pearl Harbor and also leading America to enter World War II. But during this time, Churchill knew that Germany's famous Africa Corps commander, General Erwin Rommel, was preparing to attack Cairo, Egypt. Churchill needed to oppose Rommel's panzer tanks in Africa, so he sent a huge convoy to the British naval base at Alexandria, Egypt. The 238 British tanks arrived along with these words, Behold, now is the day of salvation. That kind of reminds you of that cup that, um, that Dr. Dean has, you know, about taking things out of context. That's quoting 2 Corinthians 6, 2 out of context. Churchill's retasked use of the Bible's phrase meant, use these tanks to save Cairo pronto by defeating Rommel's tanks. Churchill assigned this mission to General Wavell. Wavell encountered an immediate handicap. The tanks were painted forest green, clashing conspicuously and vulnerably with the Egyptian desert. Now Wavell was forced to practice what he himself had preached earlier in 1940 in that memo I read to you, the one that's uh, uh, at the top of the screen. And now he needed to uh, practice that same principle. After inspecting the green-colored and therefore useless tanks, General Wavell hurried back to Cairo, bent on putting his deception and camouflage principles to work. He instructed an officer to immediately contact a small group of pre-war magicians, artists, professors, and craftsmen who had only recently arrived in the Middle East. General Wavell explained the need to invent and produce 10,000 gallons of desert-colored paint for the 238 tanks. ASAP, Lance Corporal Philip Townsend, a painter before the war, experimented with whatever materials were available. What was the winning formula? A mixture of Worcestershire sauce, cement powder, spoiled flour, and camel dung. So now the dung patrol was born. Each dawn, the streets of Cairo were swept for night leftovers. Watching the Dung Patrol in action, large numbers of Arabs were angry. For hundreds of years, camel droppings had fueled the local bread, ev bread, bread ovens. So your bread was being cooked over burning camel dung. Uh, so the Britons had to hustle to beat the angry Arab men and women to the suddenly prized camel patties. Soon, some 2,000 gallons per week were being produced to camouflage the tanks. Okay, well, anyway, that's just the general principle of distraction being used for deception. Here's one more example uh, out of uh, Reformation history. Y'all recognize that lady? Um, she was an example of what you might call red herring distraction. Uh, I mean, literally. Uh, in piscatorial cuisine, that's a fancy word for, you know, eating fish, a red herring is defined as a whole ungutted herring with a strong distinctive flavor. Salted for a month and then smoked for a week, the smoking process turning it to a bright red. Um, in a world-changing and literal example of red herring distraction, consider this part of the Protestant Reformation. 
Dr. Martin Luther taught that pastors and other church leaders should not consider celibacy, that is, abstaining from matrimony, as a biblical mandate. Dr. Luther taught that the opposite was true based on 1 Timothy 4.3. Biblically, a man's faithfulness in marriage should be evaluated as a church leadership qualification for bishops according to 1 Timothy 3.2 and for deacons according to 1 Timothy 3.12. It was one thing for Dr. Luther, a professor, yet also a pastor-priest, to preach this biblical standard, but was he willing to practice it himself? In a letter dated November 30, 1524, he said definitively, no. However, this reply changed to a yes on June 13th of the following year when he married Catherine Katie von Bora, a former nun who had abandoned her Cistercian convent in Saxony two years earlier, along with eight other Reformation-sympathetic nuns led by Magdalene von Staupitz. How did Catherine and her sisters, little wordplay there, uh, escape? They were camouflaged in hiding, crouched behind barrels of stinky herring. So you see when the gatekeeper says, hey, what's going through the gate here? What you got in the wagon? It's, uh, it's herrings. Lift up the, yeah, <laughs> yeah come, go on through, go on through. Um, Christians have been trying to escape one situation or another for a long time when the situation is, is for that. After, <clears throat> although the getaway car, or in this case a covered wagon, was arranged with Dr. Luther's help, uh, it was searched, but few would think or desire to thoroughly inspect the odorous herring barrels looking for escapees. And then soon after that, of course, she became Mrs. Martin Luther. So those are examples of how uh, distraction is used to accomplish a deception. Uh, Satan has had the tactic of deceptive displacement for a long time. The Sadducees tried to distract from God's truth by adding, uh, excuse me, subtracting from the word. And so they, deny, they also denied the authoritative relevance of the scriptures as well, which is a functional subtracting. And then the Pharisees, they distracted for, from the truth that uh, people needed to focus on by adding religious tradition. And as the Lord said, they, they nullify the effectiveness of the word by their traditions. So they were displacing Scripture's authoritative relevance by adding to the word. And the Sadducees were displacing Scripture's authoritative relevance by denying that relevance. And in any case, any kind of a substitute is, um, is a deceptive displacement. So just as a vicar of Christ or someone who claims to be that is a relevance-replacing antichrist, any vicar of Scripture is a relevance-displacing counterfeit Bible. Why and how is Scripture displaced nowadays? Um, distractions are what are used. They're idolatrous. They distract. Uh, there's many Christ substitutes that are out idolatrously trying to... Uh, rival people's attention for Christ who is the living word and then the same thing is true of the written word there are many truth substitutes out there one of the main ones that plagues America today is science falsely so called which is what we're focusing on this hour 1st Timothy 6:20 talks about uh uh avoid science falsely so called and Paul goes on to say that many because of it are erring from the faith Uh, what if somebody says, how was I supposed to know that God made me the way that Genesis is? Uh, how was I supposed to know I was personally accountable to him? Well, uh, Genesis is the foundation for the Bible, and we're to be taking that seriously. So the attack on the Bible, and oftentimes on Genesis in particular, has come from many different directions. A few centuries ago, one of the controversies was about... Uh, whether you should trust science or whether you should trust the Bible. Now, this is a false dichotomy uh, because it, it has some assumptions built into it which are misleading, and therefore they distract you from what the real issue is. So in 1633, Galileo Galilei 
was facing hostile inquisitors from the Roman Catholic Church, which was the church that he belonged to. He lived in Italy. If he lived in Germany at that time, he wouldn't have had a problem being the kind of an astronomer that he was. But he didn't live in Germany, and he wasn't a Lutheran. Instead, he was a Roman Catholic living in Italy, and he was even writing his science findings in Italian. That is the common language, so it could be understood by the people around him, and that uh, in, increased the um, controversialness of what he was learning about the heavens and what he was writing about in, in his uh, understanding of the heavens. So this became known as, and, and you see it from time to time, as a religion versus um, science controversy. Well, the problem is this was an example of sloppy science and sloppy theology at the same time because those who opposed Galileo said that uh, according to Psalm 93.1b that the, the world can't be moved, so the world has to be in the center of, of the uh, planets, and, uh, the motion of the planets and the sun, so it must be the the earth is in the middle, not moving, and then all the planets and stars and the sun and the moon are going around the earth. That was what Galileo's opponents said. Um, what Galileo said back to them was, no, it is the sun that doesn't move, and it's the earth and the planets that revolve around the sun. Both of them were part right, and both of them were part wrong. One of the things is that... It is true that Psalm 93.1 talks about uh, the earth doesn't just uh, lurch off in, in some kind of erratic movement, but it doesn't mean it was absolutely motionless. In fact, the Hebrew word that's used for that, it does not mean absolute motionlessness. It has more of the idea of won't be jerked off, off, the, uh, uh, off the tracks. You know, we, we use the expression so-and-so went off the rails or went off the tracks. The earth doesn't go off the tracks. God has a specific motion designed for it, and that's exactly what it does. And um, uh, there's a related Hebrew word that is used to describe uh, a yoke that is put on beasts of burden who will, say, plow a straight line in, on, in an agricultural uh, field. And it's not that the, the animals are motionless with this yoke connecting them together, but rather they stay on course. So what the psalmist was saying is that uh, earth is not yanked away or pulled off course from its divinely programmed circuit of movements. The, the Bible is not suggesting that the earth has absolute motionlessness. But also uh, Psalm 19 talks about the sun having a circuit. And in fact, the sun is not motionless either. And so Galileo was wrong in thinking that the sun had no motion at all. In fact, the sun is part of the Milky Way galaxy, and it has got its own circuit that it's moving in. In fact, the Milky Way galaxy itself has its movement in. So we're on the Earth, and the Earth has got its motion, and it's revolving like it's rotating like this as it's also revolving around the sun. And then the sun is moving within the Milky Way galaxy, and then the Milky Way galaxy itself is moving. And at this point, you might be getting dizzy when you think about this. But uh, anyway, so both sides were part wrong. Both sides were part right, and uh, that's uh, an example of how many times there is a controversy invented by somebody who wants to uh, disagree with the Bible, and they will make a straw man argument. That is, they will make an inaccurate presentation of what a question is. They will misrepresent what the real situation is and then try to act like, okay, we have just shown a flaw in the Bible. Um, another example of that and I mentioned in an earlier talk that a lot of the really good work on understanding how science the scientific community has gotten so far off the track is this book by Terry Mortensen pictured there on the side and his book The Great Turning Point The Church's Catastrophic Mistake on Geology Before Darwin and he documents the movement of the deists in in taking the approach towards studying nature, saying we will close the Bible and we will just use reason and observation to understand our world. And that's a very humanistic, very foolish way to try to understand God's creation. You've got a bunch of fallen 
finite humans looking at something that uh, is really very complicated, and yet the the not fallen omniscient God has given us a writing that explains what kind of a world, what kind of a universe we live in. We're foolish to keep the Bible closed and to try to understand the world around us because of that. One of the topics we'll get to a little bit later is this phrase, natural selection, which is a very deceptive phrase. Uh, it's a both distracting and deceptive at the same time phrase. And if you think about it, if you consider nature as some group of of non-human, non-thinking stuff out there, it can't make selections. To make a selection, you have to have the ability to think, the ability to choose, and you have to have some kind of values that, that you use in order to say, I'm going to choose to do this rather than to do that. And of course, you know, God, uh, he, he has got infinite mind. He has got total power to make any choice he wants to, you know, consistent with himself. And, and he definitely has his values, his preferences of, of which he would rather have what is good to him rather uh, uh, in, in uh, contrast to what is not good to him. Anyway, so the, the whole uh, use of the phrase natural selection by Darwin was designed to be a God substitute, to somehow use a phrase that, that fools people into thinking that, oh, we have an explanation for how the universe got here without God. And we'll get more on that in a minute. Um, but uh, let me use this illustration. When um, Sherry, I'm sure, remembers this when we moved to our present home. And the garage uh, door had a paved area by it that was kind of uh, sand colored. And I remember at one point walking out there as part of moving in. And there was this big tarantula on the pavement. And I was thinking, I really don't want that tarantula with the garage door open to enter the house. And then I got to figure out what am I going to do with this tarantula? Suppose he gets away and, you know, you don't know where he's, when he's going to show up. Anyway, I say him, I don't know. It might have been a female. Um, but uh, I want, my goal was to get rid of the tarantula before he got into the garage. And so I'm looking around for a big rock, you know, that I could use gravity with. And in order to uh, end the adventures of this uh, um, adventuring tarantula. But no need for me to do that because what to my wondering eyes would appear, it wasn't a, a sleigh and reindeer, but it was, it was something that flew down, dive bomb from the sky, and zoomed down and stabbed the spider. And it was a tarantula hawk wasp which you see a picture of here, you see that wasp stabbing the spider. Now that's a female wasp, and uh, she has a goal of implanting her fertilized egg into the flesh of a living tarantula. And then when her uh, offspring hatches inside the flesh of the tarantula, her offspring will immediately have food available and water available, and will basically eat his or her way out of... Anyway, um, this is good for before lunch, isn't it? And also, the wasp is stinging the spider so that the spider can't run away and get away from what's going on. And so this spider that used to be quite nimble all of a sudden is becoming kind of groggy this is my best groggy tarantula move all right i'm not going to get all the way on the ground because then i might not be able to get back up but this groggy spider that has just been anesthetized or you know something similar is being dragged by this very strong mama wasp across the pavement and parked underneath a bush and so uh Baby wasp is going to, like I say, uh, you can't say roadkill because he's not dead yet. Uh, the baby is going to eat this dying spider until baby gets big enough to leave, and by that point, the spider's dead. Okay. The question is, who uh, did did the 
sand tan colored pavement did that select for the wasp and disfavor the spider and the answer is no concrete doesn't select anything concrete is inanimate and just like physical environments don't select for any creatures to survive or not make it and you know the survival of fittest uh, phrase that is used and they'll say oh nature selected to favor this creature to favor the wasp and to disfavor the spider well the physical environment didn't select anything because the concrete doesn't think god selected to give he made the selection to give the software and the hardware necessary to the wasp so that when mama wasp sees a tarantula she will make the decision to dive bomb down stab the spider insert junior and um, then drag uh, the dying spider behind the bush and that's the the new nursery or anyway you get the idea well we get all excited when we see a uh an an unmanned um aerial uh machine like this drone here that's used in say Afghanistan and yet is it really unmanned well there's no man inside the machine but there's a man somewhere else who's got controls and who's looking at the visual information that's being transmitted from this drone and this drone is able to look at things without a human uh, making a target of himself in the process. So yes, it's unmanned in the sense that there's no human inside that, uh, that machine, that flying machine, that drone. But it's not completely unmanned. It's just the man is somewhere else working the controls remotely. And the same thing is true of the wasp. The wasp was biogenetically and bioengineeringly designed and constructed by God. And God is the genius who put it all together and who operates it remotely. Except for it's, well, I mean, God's everywhere. So it's, it's remote and he's there at the same time. Anyway, you get the idea. So natural selection is a false phrase. It's a misleading phrase and it is designed to distract you from the truth of who is actually making things and uh, who made them in the first place and is also making them operate today. And whoever made that drone is credited with great intelligence and great wisdom. Uh, but the one who created and made the tarantula hawk wasp is um, obviously infinitely wiser and more powerful. Well, let's think about Genesis. Genesis is is oftentimes at the heart of the battle for the Bible. It's basic to the Bible's theology. It teaches the beginnings of all of our key doctrines. Uh, I, I dare you to find a key doctrine that doesn't have at least a seed, uh, an embryonic form of that doctrine in the book of Genesis. And that's true of sin and death and salvation and the family and uh, government and uh, languages, you name it. Genesis teaches what God's historic role is as creator. When God wrote the Bible, the very first verse he included, he chose to identify himself as the creator. He could have used that verse to identify himself as the savior or as the judge of humanity or one of his other roles. But uh, he chose to introduce himself in the only book he wrote as the creator of heavens and earth. So that's something that we should take seriously and not uh, shy away from. Um, Satan wants us to shy away from Genesis and from the Bible in general, and he has many devices in order to try to accomplish that. Well, here's our verse, uh, 1 Timothy 6.20. O Timothy, keep, that is guard, that which is committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. And uh, that cross connects to 1 Timothy 5.20, that it's the pastor's duty to rebuke before all those who sin. So when there's uh, bad guys out there who are, who are hurting the, the thinking of the people in your flock, uh, take the, uh, the opportunity to point out who the troublemakers are. And some of the troublemakers 
have uh, they're they're dead now, they're in hell now, but what they set in motion is still causing trouble on the planet today, and so we have uh, Charles uh, Lyell and Darwin and and uh, Huxley here. Um, all promoting uniformitarian thinking when it comes to understanding nature, and um, they're the heroes of the evolutionists, but they're really the bad guys. And they have used Trojan horse tactics to cause trouble. And one of the things, one of the first casualties of their efforts was to convince people to close their Bible when studying science. And then giving them this bait-and-switch epistemology that uh, you use the scientific method, and we'll get more into what I mean by that in a little bit, but that you use that to understand about nature. And they say nature instead of creation, because if you call it creation, that kind of already tells you who did it. Uh, so they'll, they'll prefer to use the word nature. And they try not to use the word creature, but a lot of times they slip up and do it anyway. But uh, how did physical uh stuff get here how did animated life get here and especially how did human life get here the answers in the bible using the scientific method can't give you an accurate answer to that what was earth's past like the answer to that's in the bible and the way that the scientific method is used cannot give you that answer uh an accurate answer to that question and they use the phrase, the present is the key to the past. The idea is whatever we see going on, processes of nature today, uh, we, just, we just extrapolate backward in time, and that's the way it used to be. And that's false. Uh, that is the, the key doctrinal tenet of uniformitarian thinking, is that today the present is the key to the past. And actually it's, the truth is, the past is the key to understanding why things are the way they are in the present. We'll get more to that in a minute. Casualty number two, uh, casualty number one was ruining science by closing the Bible and then trying to uh, build a, a scientific understanding from that. Second casualty of this approach was to ruin the, the understanding of history. And when the Bible was closed and people tried to understand history without it, they ended up um, getting it wrong when they tried to discover what had happened in the past, such as our origins and a lot of what was going on in the ancient world. And just the, generally the, the idea of how do you make sense of history? With an open Bible, you can answer that question correctly, but with a closed Bible, you can't. Uh, another casualty would be the Christian community itself. Christian churches and Christian schools trying to accommodate closed Bible beliefs, that is mixing what the world is teaching with what God taught in the Bible, trying to mix those together and especially trying to make the Bible accommodate the world, uh, which is that's the way it always happens when you mix it to. Uh, and the result is that you end up with a lot of false teaching and you end up with a lot of uh, um, leaders influencers who are misleading the flock. People like uh, William Lane Craig, who is compromised with evolution so many ways, I don't have that many fingers. Um, that's a whole other talk. And, uh, and then, of course, the whole intelligent design movement. Uh, one example of that would be William Dembski. William Dembski, in his attempt to accommodate evolutionary thinking and yet try to not be an evolutionist, that doesn't work. He had a hard time dealing with what about Adam being created in God's image? Well, he, he believes in these long ages of things, and his idea was at some point there were some non-human primates who somehow got separated from the pack, and God put some kind of a spark in them to make them part of the image of God, but now they needed a divinely installed amnesia of their ape-like past, Anyway, uh, the efforts that people go to to accommodate the world's thinking on things when the world is wrong in the first place, uh, we don't want to do that. We would rather have sola scriptura. Some consider that inconvenient. They consider that uh, user unfriendly, unfriendly if you're trying to get the applause of the world. But um, that's that's not what we want to go by. You know, John 5:44. 
We don't want the applause of the world. We don't want the applause of humans. We want God to be pleased with us. Some will use whatever noise attracts folks to church. And you got your church growth movement and, and a lot of things. And, of course, what, what gets sacrificed in the process is the full counsel of God, which we heard about uh, earlier. And um, we appreciate uh, Chafer Seminary being committed to the teaching, the full counsel of God. Well, back to this idea that the uh, present is the key to the past. You can trace that back to James Hutton, um, a medical doctor who who uh, relied on some of David Hume's humanistic thoughts about how you understand the world around you, and of course with the closed Bible. And he's the one who promoted the idea that the present is the key to the past. Um, uh, Hutton Hutton was first, and then Lyle popularized what Hutton said. So they both taught the same basic idea, but uh, Hutton came in the 1700s. And then uh, uh, Lyell came in the 1800s, and Darwin relied heavily upon him. Well, what, what, what do we see in Scripture that disagrees with the uniformitarian assumption? We see in Second Peter 3 that uh, Peter says, expect this to happen in the last days. So this is one of the ways that we know that we're in the last days is because there are scoffers who are walking after their own lusts and they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? So they're ridiculing the idea of the return of Christ. And then on top of that, they say, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying it's all been kind of happening the same. Things continue the way they always did from the beginning. That's very different from there was a world and it was totally destroyed by a global flood. And then God restarted the human race from the eight people who got off of that boat. Uh, the, the global catastrophe of the flood is the, is the total opposite of this uniformitarian. Everything is gradually pretty much staying the same with few changes in details over eons and eons of time. Well, how can they get to this idea that everything continues as it always did? Verse 5 gives the answer. Those scoffers are willing, will, willingly ignorant. That's like being stupid on purpose. They are willingly ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water in the water by which the world that then was was overflowed with water and it perished. So they ignore the flood. And by ignoring the flood, they uh, act like everything's pretty much going the same and therefore, we can assume that whatever uh, processes are happening in nature today are the way it's always been. Well, we're, we're not having a worldwide flood today. And so they'd say, well, that's never really happened. Okay. Um, an example of efforts that are made, in this case, very foolish effort, to prove that Darwin is right and the Bible is wrong. Uh, once wrote an article called... Um, Penguin eggs to die for. And because there were a bunch of brave souls, foolishly brave, who died for three penguin eggs in Antarctica. And what they were trying to prove was what they called a law of recapitulation, meaning that um, when a human is developing in the womb, the human being in the womb doesn't start out as a human. It starts out as a fish, and then it evolves to a salamander, and then a turtle, and then a chicken, and then a rabbit, and a hum eventually a human. So the idea is, if you were to reach into the womb halfway through the, the uh, nine months, you might pull out a turtle instead of a human. Now, you're laughing, and you should be laughing, but these guys said this with a straight face. And they even thought that they would prove it. Now, they had a little fraud to help them out because if you see the drawings at the top, they look pretty similar, don't they? That's fake science. He pretended that this is what he saw. It's in textbooks. You still see it occasionally from time to time. Uh, mostly it's gone from the textbooks now. But at the bottom, you see in 1997, some photographs taken to show you what the real comparison is of these uh, um unborn uh, animals and human anyway uh, the there were some adventurers who left Great Britain and they went down to uh, Antarctica with two goals in mind they wanted to be the first to reach the South Pole they wanted to beat whoever else was trying to get there first 
course, the Norwegians were trying to get there first. But the British said, we're going to beat them there. And while we're there, we're going to collect some penguin eggs. And we're going to show that Haeckel is right about this is how evolution happens. And therefore, we're going to prove that evolution really does work and that therefore the Bible is wrong. That was their goal. Now, that's a stupid goal when your goal is just prove the Bible's wrong. I mean, you, you're set up for failure and, you, and it's self-inflicted. Um, but that was their goal. And they figured, why penguins? Well, because penguins have wings, but they don't fly. So it's like, okay, they, they must be a little bit more primitive on the evolutionary march toward sophistication because, yeah, they, they've got their wings, but the wings aren't good enough yet for them to fly. So they, they're, they're not fish. But they're not like fully bird because they can't fly. So that was the thinking is if we could just get some penguin eggs and look inside them, we'd, we'd find something that would prove the evolutionists right. So here is the map of the uh, routes to the South Pole. that was, And the race was on between the Norwegians, that's the red line, and um, Scott and the British team, uh, that's the green uh, path that you see. And so this was starting in 1911, and by the time this is done, it's 1912. So it's happening right at the turn of the year. And you can see that by the red line that the Norwegians, uh, they parked their boat by the Bay of Wales, and Scott and the Brits parked their boat by Ross Island. And so they're heading. Now, if you got really good eyes, you can see at the bottom the South Pole, and you can see that the Norwegians beat the Brits to the South Pole because Amundsen's team planted their Norwegian flag in December 14th of 1911. Scott planted his British flag the following month, January 17th of 1912. So here is your British uh, team with the British flag in the background. And in January of 1912, they are second to the South Pole. But that's that was a disappointment for them, but that's not the worst disappointment because uh, the five explorers died and were frozen to death. And eventually, uh, many months later, somebody recovered their bodies and built them, uh, you know, a burial site for them and uh, built a, you know, like a what they call a cairn, a, a pile, a stack. Eight months later, when the search party found their frozen remains, and some of them had written some of their last thoughts on pieces of paper that were found uh, with them and so we're able to see what a tragedy it was at the at the human level but uh, at the institutional level it was a it was a foolish enterprise to try to disprove the bible and get a lot of fame in the process well part of it goes back to a failure to understand what what is science what is the scientific method how do you learn something through the uh through the discipline of science. And the way I would illustrate this would be to ask you to uh, give me your best guesses of how fast these two cars were going before they were changed into their original condition, uh, changed into this condition. Now, the assumption is that they weren't made this way to start with. Okay? I mean, there there is such a thing called modern art that people get paid millions of dollars for by other people who, I don't know, are either getting kickbacks under the table or just don't know art when they see it but but for whatever assume for right now that this was not intent these cars were not made to look like that so that they could be a piece of so-called art on some uh left coast campus but how fast do you think these cars were going when they came to be in the condition they're now in i feel like an auctioneer you know give me a number zero. okay he's got it they were going zero miles per hour why is that Okay, uh, would it help if I told you that these photographs were taken at Joplin, Missouri, shortly after a really bad storm, a really bad tornado? Okay, so these cars were just sitting there doing nothing. Uh, but but how would we know? Um, sorry about that. Uh, how would we know about things that happened in the past? that don't repeat themselves, like worldwide floods. How do you understand what happened with, in a worldwide flood if that's something that doesn't repeat itself? Because uh, the scientific method, which is really the empirical science method, is based on observation. And observation, uh, 
with repetition of things that happen again and again. And uh, such as uh, boiling water. Let me see if I got that coming up. Okay, we'll get to that. Uh, if something happens again and again and again, like when the sun comes up or, or the phases of the moon, if it's repeating and anybody can observe it, then we call that empirical science, observation-based science. And that's very helpful for learning about many things, especially things that are happening in the present because you can go observe them in the present. But what about unique events that happened in the past that are no longer observable, such as an accident in the intersection, who ran the red light? Or, um, let's see, do we have any children? Let me ask a question. All right. Got a question for you. What date... Were you born? Uh, okay, and what year was that? 2013. All right, very good. Um, happy New Year. <laughs> uh, now, just by looking at him, if a bunch of empirical scientists were here, by looking at this young man, would they be able to know that he was born on January 1st of that year? No. No. Because his birth was a unique event of the no longer observable past. You can't know what day he was born by empirical science methods. That's a limitation on empirical science methodology. So, how do you know that you were really born that day? I mean, we know you're here. And, and it's quite obvious that you were there when you were born. I mean, you were definitely there. You were the star of the show. Okay? But, but you were pretty young at the time, so we can understand that you wouldn't remember what day that was. I mean, you were really young at the time. <laughs> so how do you know what your birthday is? There you go. That's called a reliable eyewitness. And especially... I don't know if dad was there when you came out, but I know for sure that your mom was there. And it was not a casual event for her. I mean, it was a big deal. And it's not something she's likely to forget anytime soon. In fact, it probably got written down pretty quick because it was a very important event. And that's how we know about no longer observable unique events of the past is we've got to have reliable eyewitnesses. And without them, you just don't know. You're just making guesses. So that's the importance of reliable eyewitnesses. So contrasting these two different scientific methods and recognizing that a lot of times the way that evolutionists fool people, both non-Christians and Christians, is they establish themselves as an expert in using empirical science methods to become experts on animals or weather or rocks or trees. They're observing something in the past. They're, they're practicing good empirical science methods. And they're recording their observations. And they notice patterns that happen in the present. And if those patterns are so uh, closely repeated time after time after time, they say, hey, this has got such a repeatability to it, we can actually make predictions, make accurate predictions of what's going to happen following what we're now seeing. But that's all based on being able to observe things in the present that have a repeating character to them. Forensic science is a different field of science. I mean, you know, these they have their overlaps, but I'm talking about the key, key difference between them. In forensic science, you're determining what happened in the historical past, and you can't verify it by a new experiment, or you can't just go visit the uh, intersection now, you'll see a few physical effects in the present that were caused by causes that are in the no longer observable past, such as skid marks or if it's a motorcycle accident, red paint on the pavement, if you know what I mean. And uh, so, I mean, there's, there's physical effects in the present that you can know something about. But if you really want to know the key uh, events that happened, if they are unique events, you need 
reliable witnesses, not lying witnesses, not witnesses that are forgetful, not witnesses that have a hard time communicating. Uh, They're thinking one thing, they're trying to explain it, and they use the wrong words. You need a reliable witness who can communicate truthfully and and accurately. And um, wow, think about the book of Genesis. We've got the perfect reliable witness, God. He was there. He knows everything. He always tells the truth. He has no memory lapses and he has no inability to communicate what he's thinking. So he is the perfect, reliable eyewitness for this no longer observable, unique set of events in the past, such as creation week or the tower, what happened to the Tower of Babel or what happened with Noah's flood, those kind of things. If you think about it, anytime you're dealing with no longer observable, unique events of the past, you are guaranteed to not be able to learn that using the uniformitarian assumption that all things continue as they always have. I mean, by definition, a unique event is unique. And therefore, um, uh, you can't use empirical science methods for that. All right, another quick illustration. Boiling pot of water. At what temperature does water boil? If you're at sea level, it boils at what? All right, 100 degrees centigrade or 212 Fahrenheit, depending which method, which uh, counting method you're using on the, on the the temperature there. But we can't know the past by the same way that we would read a thermometer in in boiling water. Because see, anybody anywhere on the planet can boil water and read the thermometer, but not anyone uh, on the planet can go visit the empty tomb. We need reliable eyewitnesses for that because that was a unique event of the no longer observable past. There's nothing like an eyewitness. Um, If you were to visit a a, a certain body of water in Europe, you would see some physical evidences of the sinking of one of Hitler's prize ships called the Tirpitz. But to really understand how it happened, we need reliable eyewitness reports. Uh, Eyewitnesses can report relevant observations about the who and the what and the how and the why that otherwise would leave a mystery misunderstood or unsolved. Eyewitness testimony relies on honesty, opportunity to observe, and accurate memory, and testimonial clarity. These forensic principles apply to the challenging task of reconstructing unique actions that happened in the past because these events, unless recorded on film or video, can't be seen in the present. And this applies uh, equally to how was that great German warship sunk or how did sea creatures get fossilized along with land-roaming dinosaurs on land, such as Montana, which is not real close to the ocean. A little more on this sinking of the turpits. Uh, a historian named Astrid Carlson Scott summarized the sinking of Germany's surviving monster battleship after the Bismarck had been sunk. Uh, Tirpitz was a twin ship that was still there, emphasizing the role of Norwegian resistant fighters who assisted Allied operations as spies and saboteurs. This account was reviewed by a Norwegian immigrant friend of mine, Mrs. Mimi Fossum, who taught me and Sherry rosemulling. And you can see a little picture of plate we, that uh, painted under her tutorship. But during World War II, she wasn't a uh, rosemulling painting instructor. She was a teenage spy for the Norwegian resistance. And one of her assignments was to be in certain places at a certain time and watch stuff and take notes and then report what happened. At other times, her duty was to pass messages uh, from one person to another, such as from one person who was in jail or things like that. I asked uh, Mimi Fossum, weren't you scared being a you know, member of the resistance and you know interacting in buildings with Nazis and slipping uh, secret messages and stuff like that? And her answer was, no, it was exciting. <laughs> uh, you know, teenagers have a different outlook on like a lot of times. But anyway... Uh, she was there and watched the bombing of the Tirpitz. And concurring with uh, um, uh, Astrid Carlson Scott's book's overall accuracy, uh, Mrs. Fossum recalled how the British Lancaster bombers 
snuck through a gap in the mountains and bombed the ammunition storage on November 12, 1944. This was after most of the Lancasters had braved a wall of anti-aircraft fire from the Tirpitz without a good hit. Mrs. Fossum ended her handwritten memoir with, I know I was there. Well, that's what you have in the book of Genesis. God was there. He knows. Anyway, uh, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of distinguishing between learning about the past using forensic science methods and learning about the present using empirical science methods because many, many individuals have had their faith in the Bible shaken because they were intimidated by some empirical science expert who claims to explain to them what happened in the no longer observable past and he's claiming to describe a unique event and he wasn't there when it happened. And he's telling you it happened 90 million years ago. And you can tell by looking at him, he's not 90 million years old. Um, But anyway, in Mimi Fossum's account, she says, I know I was there. And that was an unforgettable experience for her as an underground agent whose task was to carefully observe military activities. Well, the same is true for learning about what happened in Creation Week. How did the world get here? How did life get started? How did death get started? And uh, uh, why do we have the world in the condition that it's in right now? Uh, We need God's reliable eyewitness account of those things in our past. And that same uh, concept, we see that in God talking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. The reason why Job can't answer the question is because he wasn't there. He's not an eyewitness. How's he supposed to know about these unique, no longer observable uh, events of the past? He can't know it unless God gives it to him by revelation. And God has to do that as a matter of grace to us. Just like he makes us by grace, he saves us by grace, and he gives us truth in his written word by grace. In verse 21, same idea. Do you know it because you were then born? Or because of the number of your days is great? The rhetorical question's answer is no, Job. You don't know that. And if God doesn't tell you, you'll never know. Uh, God has to be the one who gives truth about such things. So the evolutionists have to play a distraction game, a very deceptive game, to get you away from thinking like that. And uh, in the process, they make a mess of things. All right. Now this, I take very, I take this personally. Because I like to eat fish. But uh, there were reports that the North Atlantic cod population was getting smaller. And some of the uh, fishermen, as well as some of the fish consumers, who I identify with, uh, were concerned about this. And so they brought that to the attention of the British government. And the British government did what governments often do. Oh, well, let's start a study. Let's fund some kind of an investigation. Let's pick some smart guy. Hey, let's pick Charles Darwin's uh, right-hand man, Thomas Huxley. And let's ask him to research this and analyze this complaint that cod populations are waning. And is it due to overfishing? Well, the very first thing that Thomas Huxley did was he dismissed all of the eyewitness reports of the fishermen. Just rejected all of their reports as eyewitnesses of what was going on in the North Atlantic. Why? Well, because they're uneducated fishermen. Why would you, as a scientific expert, rely on information taken from people who are uneducated? I mean, they haven't even studied evolution. (laughs) And so as a result, instead of looking at the real evidence, he decided that he would theorize. That's what evolutionists do. They ignore the reality, and let's, let's think about our theory. Okay, our theory is that when the fishermen go out there with their boats and their nets... They catch a bunch of fish, and the fish that they caught are obviously not as fit to survive as the ones who escape the nets. So basically, they're culling out the weaklings. So what they bring back for us to eat are just the weak fish, the ones that weren't that good at, they weren't that fit to survive. So what you've done is you've removed the the weaker drains on the fish society so that those who are stronger and more resilient and more clever will be, have 
better access to the resources that cod populations need. So all you've done is you've helped the cod population. You've, you've culled out the weak and the undesirables, and now you've... I mean, this is like eugenics for fish. And, uh, yeah, you're right. Somebody needed a wake-up call when they're talking like that. <laughs> and so his idea was the more you fish the better you're re- removing the weaker, in, more inferior cod from the cod population, which means those who survive your fishing nets will be better, and so they'll be reproducing the better fish. And so fish all you want. The more fish you catch, the better it will be for the population growth and, and vigor of the North Atlantic cod. And that's why there's not a lot of cod. Because of thinking like that, thinking that the population was inexhaustible. And, of course, that's not the case. In fact, uh, this could even start a war. Because uh, at more than one time after World War II, Iceland was trying to protect their territorial waters from those who would come in and grab up their cod. And... They told them you're not allowed to do that, and those who came in from Britain and Germany said, ha-ha, try and stop us. I mean, what are you going to do, shoot us? <laughs> and the Coast Guard of Iceland said, well, we don't really think... I think there was actually a, one case where they actually fired a shot or something like that, but they pretty much stayed away from that approach to defending their coastal waters and the cod populations that live therein. They used the Coast Guard to go out there with these lines that had hooks on them, And then they were able to eventually slice the lines that held the nets that had this huge catch of fish. So here's a British boat. It comes out there, catches a huge amount of Icelandic cod. And then an Icelandic Coast Guard boat comes up, slices uh, those cords. And so the big uh, net of fish just falls down to the bottom and the fish all go free. And now the boat has to go back to England with nothing to show for all that time and get a new net and go up there and face the same thing again. And so they negotiated a treaty. But that was the the Cod Wars. Um, The Huxleys, of course, have caused a lot of trouble. If we had the time, we could go into uh, their their leadership in Planned Parenthood, their leadership in promoting LSD. Okay, okay, he said five. This will be quick. The missing links are still missing. Um, Carbon-14 should disappear in less than... uh, It should have a half-life of less than 6,000 years. All right. I've got to get this illustration in. How reliable is carbon-14 dating? They say it's it's a slam dunk. Well, um, they found 300 skeletons... The historians who found the 